How many of you have ever seen those optical illusion posters? You know, it, it, there's those posters, and they have like uh, all those dots or all those lines on it. And, and, and if you look really intently at that poster, if you look really intently inside all those dots, some sort of image begins to appear. You know, maybe you've seen these. They have books. They have posters. I remember, you know, we used to have tricks to try and get that image to show up. And, and, and if you had a poster, you would hold it really close to your face. So then you'd pull it away slowly. And, and, and sometimes the image would come into and you'd be able to see, you know, there might be a dog in the picture or something else. Other times they would say, if you just squint really hard, I'm going to open up your eyes. I mean, you guys, anybody ever done one of these before? You know what I'm talking about? And... Um, and so the idea is if you look really hard at this, at this picture, at this image, that you would see something inside of the image that was amazing, that was life-changing, that was marvelous. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're actually going to be in Mark chapter 14 and 15. And uh, so just, uh, just know we're going to be there. If you need a Bible, uh, we have an usher in the back. And uh, just slip your hand up and we'll come and bring one of those Bibles to you. As we look at our text today, Mark, Mark chapter 14 uh, and 15, we're going to see that there's three stories. And we look at the three stories and we think, well, it seems easy as to why these stories are all related. I mean, all these stories seem to be about Jesus being on trial. So the first story, Jesus has already been arrested. Jim Herring taught us that last week. Jesus has been arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. He's brought before all the religious leaders. And we see Jesus put on trial in front of them. So you think, okay, that makes sense. The second story is about uh, Peter, the, the, the apostle Peter. And Peter, as Jesus is on trial, Peter's kind of on the outside watching in. He's kind of observing what's happening to Jesus while he's on trial. And we see that Peter, in fact, he denies knowing Jesus three times during this. And so you kind of see, yeah, Peter's story is related to Jesus, is related to the trial. And then the third story in Mark chapter 15 is Jesus, he's, he's brought before the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate's interrogating Jesus, and he says, man, I don't, I don't think Jesus has done anything wrong. And if you remember, what happened is, is uh, the crowd yells, crucify him, crucify him. The, the crowd wants Jesus killed. And so Pilate says, what do you want me to do? I've got this murderer named Barabbas, and I've got Jesus. Which one of these should I let go? And the crowd chants, Barabbas, let Barabbas go and crucify Jesus. And so you could look at all three of these stories, and we could conclude that what ties these stories together is the fact that Jesus is on trial. I mean, it just makes sense. That seems to be what we are talking about. But you see, I think, I think the author of this book, I think Mark, I think he wrote these stories kind of like one of those optical illusions. Where if we really would look deep, if we would look intently, I think there's something that if we see it, if, if, if we just look a bit deeper, there's something that is truly life-changing that we will see. So, as we jump in, I'm going to ask you just to join me in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in and read part of this together. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be gathered here today, to be gathered with your church. God, we know the church is not a building. The church is a people. So we're thankful to be gathered uh, here today with, with those around us. And God, I pray that you would help us to, be, to open up our hearts, to open up our minds, to open up our ears, to hear your words today, God. This isn't just a pastor's opinion. God, this is your word. So God, I pray that your word would, would do a work in our hearts today, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would draw us to you, God. That's what we want for every one of us in here today. So God, 
We plead for your presence with us. God, we sing about your presence. And now, God, we ask for your presence on us. That you would, would, would do a work in our hearts today. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. So Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to start reading in verse 53. And you can follow along. The word should also be on the screen if you want to follow along the screen. And it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet, even about this testimony, even about this, their testimony did not agree. So a couple things I want to just stop right there. A couple things we want to point out. I want you to see that this is not a legit uh, trial here. I mean, I mean, sure, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, who they had the right to, 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 to try, uh, to have a trial. But this is not a legit trial. This is more of a formality. You see, the outcome was already determined before the trial was ever convened. Uh, typically, if you're going to a courtroom, the judge shouldn't make up his mind before the evidence has been heard. But that's what has happened here in this case. That's exactly what's happening Jesus was arrested as a criminal. And verse 55 says, those religious leaders, they brought Jesus now and they're looking for the testimony that they could charge Jesus with so they could sentence him to death. So from the very get-go, this is not a legitimate trial. This is a formality because they've already decided the verdict. And now they're looking for the evidence that that they can support what they believe. Something else we have to understand is we have to understand that this trial was an illegal trial at that. You see, according to Jewish law, according to Jewish law, any trial that was going to deal with, 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 uh, with, with anybody who had done something illegal, any trial had to, be hap- had to happen during the day. That was just part of the, the, the custom, part of the law. And so, obviously, this story happens. Jesus is arrested, and that very night is brought before the Sanhedrin for this trial. So this trial is happening at night, which makes it an illegal trial. And not only that, but there's another reason why this trial is illegal. Because, again, according to Jewish law, and they would have understood this, is you can't have a verdict and a trial on the same day. I mean, this is one of the things that they set up, so that way, hopefully, they didn't have any wrongfully convicted people. They said, you can hear the trial this day, but then you have to sleep on it before you make your judgment. That way, you make sure you have the right decision. And so, this trial should have lasted two days, and it lasted a night. And so, from the very get-go, we have to understand that this trial was, was, was illegal, was illegitimate. Okay? But one thing, one thing I find fascinating is as you read through this, you know, these religious leaders, they try desperately to have people come forward to offer any sort of testimony against Jesus that they could sentence him to death. I mean, they, they, they brought as many people as they can. And, and, and what kind of evidence do they find against him? It's interesting because they find no evidence against Jesus. This is what they're dealing with. 
In fact, the closest any witness had to agreeing was in first, it was in verse 40, 57 and 58, where you've got the two dudes who come and they partially agreed and they said, Hey, Hey, we heard Jesus say this. We heard Jesus say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. I mean, this is the strongest case that people have presented against Jesus because there's a little hint of truth to that. See, in John chapter 2, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was at the, at the temple. And, and, and this is what he said. He said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Notice he said destroy. He didn't say I'm going to destroy this temple. He said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. And what Jesus was talking about at that point is he wasn't talking about a temple made with bricks and mortar and stone. He was talking about his body. He was giving a, 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 a preview of what the resurrection was going to be. You destroy my body. You kill my body. And in three days, I will raise it again. And so this is the closest that anybody's had to making a statement against Jesus. But Mark says they couldn't agree in their details. And so no matter how many witnesses the, the religious leaders bring to try and entrap Jesus, they can't find any evidence that proves that Jesus is, is worthy of death. So as the case is falling apart, there's no valid testimony against Jesus. You've got to feel like these, these religious leaders, these, these priests and, and the Sanhedrin, you've got to imagine that they're getting pretty frustrated. That they can't find the testimony that they want to support what they want to do, which is to kill Jesus. And this is important for us to see. This is important for you and I to understand. Is, is for these religious leaders, for this Sanhedrin, for the high priest, Jesus has already given them everything they need to believe in who he was. Jesus has already given them everything they need to know. He, these, these religious leaders, they've seen, they've seen Jesus' miracles. They've seen Jesus do all sorts of, 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 of amazing things. They've seen Jesus' teaching. They've heard his teaching. How he teaches like no one other. How he teaches as one with authority. They've, they've seen Jesus' sinless life. They've seen all these things about Jesus. All the evidence is in front of them. But their hearts are so hardened. They can't even consider the evidence. They won't even consider the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Ultimately, these religious leaders, they had no interest in the real evidence. Their hearts were completely hardened toward Jesus. They already made up their mind. Jesus, you're a fake. We want to get rid of you. We don't want to consider what you have to say. Just makes me think, how many of you have met somebody that has a hard heart like this? How many of you have met someone who is already convinced in their own mind about God? They've already decided, you know, God is not real. God is a fake. Jesus is not the answer. And no matter what evidence is put in front of them, no matter how many transformed lives are put in front of them, no matter how many times we see God's word put in front of them, they aren't willing to consider the evidence because they already have a hard heart. They've already made their decision. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to consider who Jesus is. In fact, I think, about, I think about a young man that I used to work with at Madison House. A great young man. This young man ended up going and serving for, uh, our country for three or four years. Just a good kid. We played soccer with him. But man, anytime, anytime we start talking about faith, he shut it down. 
Anytime I started talking about God, he'd say, you know what, you know what, you know, you know, Kevin, you know, if, if that God thing works for you, that's great. But, but I don't want to hear about your God thing because that works for you. It doesn't work for me. I don't believe that Jesus is the answer. I don't believe it. I'm not willing to listen to your Bible study. I'm not willing to listen to the stories you have to tell. See, this man had made up his decision. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I'm not going to listen to any God who's going to tell me what to do. And he became so hard-hearted that he wasn't even willing to consider the evidence. He wasn't even willing to have the conversation. Have you met people like this? Have you met people like this? Because they're all around us. The, the reality is they're all around us. These religious leaders, okay, they fit this category. Their hearts are completely hardened to Jesus. They've already decided, I'm going to reject Jesus no matter what evidence is put in front of me. And so here they bring Jesus and they're bringing him on trial and their case is falling apart. Their case is falling apart because they can't get any witnesses to testify that Jesus has done anything wrong. And so the case is falling apart. So the high priest jumps in and the high priest jumps in and says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and, and put Jesus on the spot and we're going to try and force Jesus to incriminate himself on stand on the stand. So here's what he says. Verse 60. It says that the high priest stood in the mist and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him again and said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. See, finally, with their case falling apart, the high priest asked very clearly, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? Now, Jesus, we've seen throughout his lifetime, he's been a little leery to answer that question directly. He, because he wants people to be able to come to the answer for themselves. But here, Jesus, finally, he's going to give the priest, uh, the high priest, a very clear answer. He says, I am. I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. But Jesus doesn't just say that. He actually begins to clarify what he means by saying, I am the Messiah. You see, the Jews in those days, they, they didn't expect the Messiah to be divine. They thought the Messiah would be a political ruler. And so, when, when, sure, he'll be a son of God, but they thought he'd be a son of the God in the sense of maybe he's just a special person. He's just a religious person, and so he becomes known as being a son of God. They had no idea that this would be the actual beloved son of God. And so Jesus explains what he means. And he says, he, he uses the term, uh, the son of man about himself. He says, you will see the son of man referring to the Messiah, referring to himself. And this is a picture back to uh, Daniel chapter seven. And for further clarification, Jesus says that he will sit on the right hand of God in heaven, which is a reference to Psalm chapter 110. In Psalm 110, King David the guy who killed Goliath, King David is writing and, and, and he says, he says his Lord, who is a unique heir to God, who sits at the right hand of God and will bring vengeance against his evildoers, against all the people that have wronged him, all the people that have wronged God. And so Jesus says this, I am 
the Christ. I am the son of man, reference to Daniel 7. And I am the one who sits on the right hand of God, in a reference to Psalm 110. Try to make it very clear. I am the Christ. Both of these biblical allusions, the son of man and the one sitting on the right hand of God, both of those biblical uh, allusions uh, uh, that Jesus uses for himself, they present the Messiah as a coming judge. When he says, I am the son of man, I'm the one who's sitting at the right hand of God, he is saying, I am coming as a Christ and I'm coming as a judge. This This is important for us to understand because what has Jesus done wrong? What has Jesus done wrong? Nothing. And we see Jesus on trial. And what is the evidence presented against Jesus? What are they holding against him? Nothing. Jesus has done nothing wrong. So here's Jesus. He's innocent of all charges. He's standing on trial. And he's going to be falsely sentenced to death. And in his response, in his response to the high priest, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the son of man who sits at the right hand of God. Uh, who will come with clouds of heaven as a judge. He's saying to the high priest, even though you think that you're the judge, even though I'm on trial and you think you're the judge, it's actually backwards. Really, I'm the one coming as the judge, and you are the ones that will be judged. This is all backwards. He's saying the judged ones, the judged ones, they're the ones doing the judging right now, and the judging one is the one being judged. And he says, this is the way it should be. You should be standing before me, not me standing before you. He's saying, I am the judge. I have the right from God to judge every one of you. So this is where we have to think about the optical illusion. This is where we've got to think, think really hard and look very deeply so we see what's going on here. I mean, Jesus, he's presented all of the evidence. If he's the judge, Jesus has presented all the evidence. Jesus is the one who we think is on trial. He's really actually the judge. And it's those religious leaders that are the ones on trial. Jesus has presented his evidence. He's lived a sinless life before all of them. He's, he's, he's done all of his miracles. They've seen all of his miracles and his divinity. They've heard Jesus's incomparable teaching. They've, they've heard him confess who he just is. They heard him confess, I am the Christ. Yet it is them who are accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Mark kind of takes the story. And and if if you look deep, he's flipped it completely around to show us really that it is these religious leaders who have committed blasphemy against God by rejecting Jesus and condemning him to death. Mark is trying to give us the picture. Mark's trying to give us the picture. It's not Jesus who's on trial here. It's those religious leaders. And those religious leaders, they just became convicted. They just became guilty because they rejected Jesus. They condemned him to death for something he's never done. Jesus standing on the, as the judge. And he's saying, I am the Christ. What are you going to do about it? And they say, we're going to sentence you to death. Do you see? It's really the religious leaders on trial here. The religious leaders They are the guilty ones. They are the ones who deserve to be put to death. Yet here is Jesus. Jesus is going to take the punishment that these religious leaders deserve. See, this is such a great picture of our own human condition. See, our sin is boiled down to the fact that we substitute ourselves for God. 
We put ourselves on that judge seat. We say, you know, I'm going to be the one that judges. And, and God is the one that we judge. And we judge whether or not God's worthy of our worship. We judge whether or not God is worthy of our, our, our life, of giving our lives to him. We judge whether or not God's way is the best way or not. We, 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 we have taken God off of the throne and we've put ourselves there. And yet, just as we see that human condition played out, we also see the gospel played out. Because here, the Sanhedrin, they're the guilty ones. They're the ones that deserve death for asserting themselves into the position that only God deserves. Yet Jesus is going to the cross to take the punishment that they deserve. I mean, this is a whole Christian message in a nutshell. The members of the Sanhedrin, they, they, they assume the place that only Jesus deserves. And Jesus assumes the place that they deserve on the cross. So outside of this trial, outside of this, Peter has been watching uh, from a distance. And Mark tells us what's going to happen to Peter next. Looking at a verse, starting in verse 66. And it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither uh, know nor understand what you mean. And he went out of the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl said to him uh, and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. And he said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said it to him before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. Again, this is one of those optical illusions. We think the story is a nice little story about Peter. And, and Peter's at Jesus' trial and this is what happens. But if, if, if we look deeper... I want you to see that I think Peter is on trial, just like those religious leaders were, just like Jesus was. I mean, look at the similarities between Peter and Jesus. Peter and Jesus, they're both being questioned. Jesus, he's being questioned by the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And Peter, he's being questioned by a little servant girl. Peter, like Jesus, he's being charged with something that will get him into great trouble. Jesus Jesus, the charges against Jesus are false, while the charges against Peter, they're completely true. The charges against Peter, you're one of them, and that's true, but, Je but Peter denies it. Peter, like Jesus, he responds to the charge. Jesus responds to the charge with the truth. He says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. And, and Peter, he responds to the charge, and he denies it. He, they say, are you one of his followers? And Peter says, no, I'm not. I don't even know the man. Fourth, Peter, like Jesus, they're both going to spend time with the guards. However, when Jesus spends time with the guards, he's beaten by them. Meanwhile, Peter, if you remember from verse 54, uh, Peter was warming himself by the guards, trying to protect himself and stay comfortable. And lastly, Peter and Jesus, we see both of them are cursed. Jesus is going to going to receive the, the, the condemnation or the curse of the Sanhedrin and be sentenced to death. And Peter, 
he actually brings a curse upon himself. He says, may I be cursed and condemned if I'm really his follower. See, I think the way that Mark writes this is if we look deep enough, I think we can see Peter's on trial just as much as Jesus is. Peter is on trial, and it's Peter who denies the truth, and it's Peter who becomes guilty. But guess what happens? Guess what happens that night? Guess who walks out a free man? Guess who walks out a free man, and guess who will be led to the cross the next day? Peter is going to walk out the free man, and Jesus is going to walk to the cross. See, in the same way that the Sanhe- same way as the Sanhedrin, it is Peter who deserves the punishment. It is Peter who deserved death. Yet Jesus is the one who's going to take the punishment for Peter. See the substitution here? Peter's the one that is guilty, but Jesus is the one that's going to take that punishment. Something, just a little bit of a side note, a little bit of a rabbit trail. You know, seeing Peter crash and burn like this, it kind of freaks me out. I mean, when you look at all of Jesus' disciples, you look at all of Jesus' disciples, it kind of freaks me out that Peter is the one who crashes and burns. Because, I mean, think about him. Think about his pedigree. Of all the disciples, Peter should be the one that should be faithful to the end. I mean, look at his pedigree. He had been with Jesus from the very beginning. Jesus, when he started his public ministry, he called Simon, Peter, and Andrew. They were the first two disciples. Peter, Peter witnessed innumerable, innumerable uh, miracles. I mean, even his, his, he saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. I mean, Peter, 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 he was at the, he was at the, the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there when Jesus was, was transfigured and he saw Moses and Elijah. I mean, he saw all this miraculous stuff. Peter, dude, the guy, the guy walked on water. The guy walked on water. I mean, you look at him and say, there's no way. There's no way that he's going to fall away from God. There's no way he's going to crash and burn. But here and now, Peter's life, Peter's faith hasn't gone the way he thought it was going to be. He wanted Jesus to become king of the Jews. And he wanted Jesus to give Peter a, a position of power, a position of authority, of honor. But here, Jesus is being condemned to death. And the plans that, that Peter had for his life with Jesus, they're, they're falling apart. And it leads to Peter denying to know Christ. See, it kind of freaks me out because I think if Peter could do that, what about me? Peter's pedigree is much better than mine. I imagine Peter's better pedigree is probably more, better than most of ours. And if Peter can crash and burn, what hope is there for you and I? I mean, how, how can we avoid crashing and burning like Peter did? But let me say... We want to learn how to avoid crashing and burning like that. Let me say it's all about the gospel. It's always all about the gospel. See, I think Peter, I think Peter totally thought that he was trusting Jesus. I think he thought that he was living fully dedicated to him. I mean, he's, he's followed Jesus to the trial, for goodness sakes. I mean, that shows that he is following Jesus wholeheartedly, right? But remember something that Jim taught us last week. Jim taught us last week about Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, Jesus predicted, Peter, you will fall away. You will fall away. And remember what Peter said? Peter said, never, never. If If I must die, I will never deny you. And he said, he makes this great promise. Jesus, I'm never gonna deny you. I will never be in that spot. But remember, when Jim taught us this last week, 
Peter made that statement out of pride. He made that statement. He made that statement. He was basing it off his own strength. He was basing it off his own power. He was basing it off his own wisdom. So while physically Peter is following Jesus, really what Peter's doing is he's putting his trust in himself. I mean, no way, Jesus. I'll never leave you. But notice who he's talking about. It's I, me, Peter. It's all about Peter. I will never do that. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of God's power. There's no mention of God's grace. There's no mention of God's strength. It's all about Peter. And Peter, when he stood on his own strength, when he tried following Jesus through his own wisdom, he completely collapsed and crashed and burned. See, I think, if we're going to be honest, I think many of us could find ourselves in shoes similar to Peter. I mean, yes, we've confessed Jesus as our Savior. Yes, 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 we have a relationship with him. Yes, 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 we're a Christian. We've given our lives to him, and, and, and we think we're following him. And we think we're trusting him. But I tell you, how quickly, how quickly do we go into trusting him, to trusting our own goodness, to trusting our own moral performance, to trusting and and doing the work of faith ourselves. I mean, this is our fallback. This is what we naturally do. Sure, theoretically, we get the idea that we're trusting Jesus. But how many times do we revert back to trusting in ourselves? Say, I'm a good Christian because I do this and I do this and I do this and this makes me good before God. This makes me better than other people because I go to church, because I read my Bible, because I pray and we begin to build our our faith on our own moral uh, responsibility instead of on Jesus. So how do we avoid a collapse like Peter? We embrace and we live the gospel in our life. See, the gospel The gospel says this. The gospel says that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe. But we're also more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. You and I, we are more wicked than we could ever imagine. Prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? When we understand the gospel, we understand we naturally are bent towards rebellion. But God gives us the ability to be more loved and accepted through Jesus than we ever dared hope. Yes, we, 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 we believe the gospel for salvation, but it's not just a one-time decision. We, we, we live every day in the gospel. That's what makes us more like him. That's where our sanctification comes from. Not from our own strength, but from God's grace in our lives. You know, I met with a guy a year and a half ago. And he says, hey, Kevin, can I talk to you about your preaching? I'm like, oh, this should be fun. And he says, he says, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, when are you going to go deeper in your preaching? When are you going to go deeper? Because, you know, I feel like you talk about the gospel every single week. And, you know, that's kind of like, that's kind of like kindergarten. You know, and I've, I've, I've been to kindergarten. I'm ready to go deeper. You know, I'm ready to go the deeper things of the faith. I'm ready to go fifth or seventh grade. Or maybe I'm ready for high school. You know, can't we go deeper in your preaching? I make no apologies. That we are a gospel-centered church. I make no apologies that in my preaching, we're going to come back to the gospel every single week. The Apostle Paul, he wrote to the Galatians, and he said, I preached one gospel to you. One gospel. 
Only, the only thing that goes deeper is a greater understanding of how the gospel lives in our lives and how it plays out in our lives. It's what saves you in the first place, and the gospel is what carries you through life. Paul said it in, in, in Galatians chapter 3. He said, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, having begun your Christian faith by the gospel, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's all about the gospel. Peter, when Jesus said, you're going to fall away, Peter didn't believe Jesus. He said, I've already confessed you as my savior. I've already given my life to you. I've already gone through kindergarten, Jesus. There's no way I'm going to fail on this because I've already been through kindergarten. And yet Peter began to weep in repentance after he denied Christ because he saw that he put his trust in himself. He saw his pride. He saw his cowardness. He saw his self-centeredness. He saw his self-reliance and it crushed him completely. I hope you, you get what, we're, what I'm trying to get across by this. Listen, your success as a Christian man or a Christian woman your success in having a godly marriage. Your success of a parent raising kids who love Jesus. Your success as a, as a Christian employee. My success as a pastor. These things are not based on how good we are. Not based on how amazing our talents and skills are. It's based on you and I realizing how broken we are and how much we need Jesus in our lives. And when Jesus comes in and we live in the gospel, he begins to transform us from the inside out. And all of a sudden, all these things begin to fall into place because we're understanding who we are and who he is. And we live in his strength and not our own. We got to finish this. All right. Uh, uh, Mark chapter 15. Here's our, here's our last story we're going to look at. Mark 15. The next morning, the religious leaders, they, they, they meet together. And they know the laws and the customs. They know that for them to actually convict somebody to death, that they have to take um, the man to, they have to take Jesus to the Roman governor. And the Roman governor has to approve of the death. So the religious leaders, they bring Jesus to Pilate. And they accuse Jesus of trying to, overthrow the Roman government because Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. By claiming to be king of the Jews, that it clearly means he's trying to overthrow the Roman government. So they bring him to, Jesus, to Pilate, and Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus and, and, and gives Jesus the opportunity to, re- to defend himself, which Peter doesn't do because really there isn't anything for Jesus to defend himself against. And so Pilate at this point, he begins to realize, you know, Jesus is innocent. Jesus has done nothing wrong worthy of death. In fact, in verse 10 of of chapter 15, it says that Pilate recognized that the religious leaders had delivered Jesus to Pilate out of envy. That's why they brought him before it. So Pilate, he's in this situation. He knows that Jesus is innocent. And he's trying to figure out a way. How can I release Jesus without causing a riot? How can I let Jesus go? So this is what he does. Look at verse verse 6. Mark 15, starting in verse 6. It says, now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in, an, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. 
And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Barabbas, he was a murderer. He was a first century Liberation Army member. Hard-nosed, bloody-handed rebel. And Jesus, once again, he stands before Pilate. He stands before the crowds, innocent. There's nothing that he's done wrong, that, that Jesus has done wrong, that Pilate says, I can have him be crucified. But Pilate, Pilate's afraid. Pilate, he's afraid of Jesus. But more importantly, Pilate, he's afraid of the crowds. And so Pilate lets Barabbas, the murderer, the man everybody knew was guilty, he sets Barabbas free and he condemns Jesus, the innocent man. He condemns Jesus to death. See, once again, if we look deep enough, we see that just like the Sanhedrin and just like Peter, Jesus takes the punishment that Barabbas deserves. Barabbas is the one who deserves death, but Jesus is going to be the one who takes his punishment. See, if we look through this whole message, if we look through this whole passage, we see the theme throughout this entire passage. Jesus is our substitute. We are the guilty ones. We are the guilty ones. Every one of us, we are guilty before God. And Jesus, he's the innocent one. He's the innocent one receiving the justice that the guilty ones deserve. Jesus takes the punishment that you and I deserve. One of the, one of the theologians said it this way, the blameless is blamed so the blameworthy can go free. The blameless one is blamed so the blameworthy can go free. That's us. Jesus, he's the blameless one. He's going to be blamed. He's going to take the punishment so you and I who are blameworthy can be set free. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This means that Jesus, who knew no sin, who was not guilty before God, he became sin for us. He became sin for the Sanhedrin. He became sin for Peter. He became sin for Barabbas. He became sin for you and for me. And he paid the punishment. He paid the death that we deserve. And he gives us the right to have a right standing before God. This changes everything. When we understand that Jesus has substituted himself in our place, that we're the guilty ones, and Jesus has taken that guilt from us. It changes everything. We once stood condemned, but when you put your faith in Jesus and you accept the gift of salvation that's offered on the cross, means Jesus took your punishment for you. And that should be amazing. We can't say the same because of what he's done. This is a life-changing message. We say, well, well why, do we, why do we come to church and why do we worship? Why do we sing songs? Why do we lift our hands in praise and worship to Jesus? Why do we do this? Because he 
who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be right with God. I mean, why do we, why do we read the Bible and why do we try and follow what God's word says? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become right with God. I mean, why, why are we supposed to give 10% of our income back to God? Because he who knew no sin became sin for you so that you might become right with God. I mean, I mean, why do we talk about Jesus with our friends? Why are we supposed to tell other people about what Jesus has done for us? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be me right with God. When we understand this, when we see ourselves as the guilty ones, and we see what Jesus has done for us, substituting himself, it changes everything. And pretty soon, we aren't living like Peter in our own strength because we're so awesome. We're living out of the graciousness, the, the, the thankfulness of what he has done for us. And it changes everything. Our lives begin to change because we understand just the amount of love that he's extended to us. And, and all of our religious things, going to church, isn't out of responsibility. Isn't out of trying to earn God's favor. It's because he who knew no sin became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God. Changes everything. And as we walk out of here today, everything should be changed if we understand what that means. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good. God, I stand up here on this platform as a pastor. I stand up here condemned. I stand up here guilty. Yet through the love that you through the love that you have for me, you sent your son to take that punishment for me. Every one of us in here today, we stand before you guilty of putting ourselves on the throne, of, of putting our trust in ourselves, of rebellion. And yet because of the love that you have for us, because of the love that Jesus has, he took that punishment for us. He suffered the cross for us so we could be made right with God. God, I pray that that message would resonate deep within our hearts, deep within our souls. That we would allow ourselves to be changed by that. That our hearts would be changed by the amount of love that you have for us. The fact that you took that punishment for us. God, as we have an opportunity here now to respond to your word through worship. God, I pray that as we sing these songs, God, I pray that we'd be able to sing them differently. We'd be able to sing them out of the gratitude and out of the overflow of our heart for what Jesus has done for us. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so we could be made right with God. God, I pray for us as we, as we deal with sin in our lives, that we'd be willing to confess that before you. That we'd be willing to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've done this because you've given me more than I could ever imagine. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that I could be made right with you, God. God, I pray that we would walk out of here differently. That we'd walk out of here with the desire to serve you, to follow you, to obey you. 
to love you because of what you've done for us. That you've become our substitute on the cross so that we could experience your righteousness. God, I pray for every one of us in here today. God, that you would change us. That this message would resonate deep within our hearts and deep within our souls. That we'd walk out with an overflowing gratitude for the love and the grace that you've shown to us. That he who knew no sin might become sin for us so that we could be made right with God. Ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.